When you decide to go into business for yourself, it's as much about your hustle as it is about your talent. As skilled and talented as you may be, if your hustle is not on point, you are going to struggle not only getting into the game, but also staying in it. Phil Penman understands that, which is why he's managed to establish himself as a celebrity street and commercial photographer. The lengths that he had to go to as a paparazzi could make the difference between getting the shot or not, but also, more importantly, the difference of thousands rather than hundreds of dollars. That kind of work is not for the faint of heart, especially when it involves negotiating the streets of New York City on a bicycle. But as Phil understands, you've got to do what you got to do. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. So thanks for making time for me. I appreciate it. Thanks for your patience and finally getting around to you. Thank you for inviting me. I, I saw you're up, you're up to like 528 or something yeah. right now. So a lot of yeah. interviews, man. Yeah, I get so, because you sent me your book months ago. You know, I talked to my wife, who's the producer, to try and make sure that uh, we, we got you in somewhere. But it, it can be quite the juggle because there's so many people to consider. Oh, but I really love, I love the book. I love your story. But one of the things that's fascinating, even before we get into yep. talking to you about your photography, is just like, man, you have held so many jobs. <laughs> <laughs> you have done so many things. And, a ton uh, I did a list as well. But. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just, was it just the, the, the nature of being like a hustler that you were just like, you just did what you needed to do in order to get by? Is that, is that why you just had wore so many different hats? 100% a hustle. When I was in college, I was studying photography and a box of Ilford, like a hundred sheets was say 30 pounds. And mm -hmm. that's a lot of money to a college student. And you were having to crank this out week after week. So I had, I would study and I had two to three jobs that I was doing while I was in college. So in the daytime, I would serve lunches to like rich preppy boy call, uh, prep school kids at a nearby like uh, boys school. Then at mm -hmm. night, I worked in a, a bar and a nightclub four nights a week. And then at the weekend, I used to work at either Legoland or Twickenham Rugby Stadium. So I would literally, I would work all day through the night and then have like three hours sleep, go to college, study. And it was just, oh man, you did it just because, you know, the, the bitch would be like, we used to do 5-4 transparency. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and all it would take was the tutor to say, you're half a stop off. And they're like, fuck, that's another three pounds I got to pay. I'm like, fuck. <laughs> when I worked in the bar, I only got paid £2.20 an hour. So, like, and there were no tips. Oh, wow. That's yeah, brutal. Like, hustle, hustle. Well, with, when you're young, you don't need that much sleep. Exactly. Now I'm just like, I'm passed out by 7 o'clock in the evening. <laughs> I'm out. So when did you get the bug? When did you discover that you wanted to study photography and, and, and become a photographer? Uh, it was my backup, believe it or not. I was 15 and I wanted to be a sports teacher. And my dad was like, well, you've got to have a backup. And he was a photographer. So I kind of, I grew up with the darkroom and seeing prints in the bathtub being washed and stuff. So he was like, well, go through this newspaper, pick out the best picture that you think. And if you, uh -huh. if I agree with you, then I'll let you study photography as a backup. And I ended up being a terrible sports teacher. So you know, I, I 
virtually failed sports studies, but I aced my photography. So I'm like, that's the way. Man, to find out that photography is your fallback, it's yeah. funny. Yeah. You know, because most people, it's like photography is the first choice, not the second. No, it was like my dad was always insistent on you've always got to have a backup for everything. So that was my backup. And then I studied for like the next three years, I guess, and then started working straight away into it. And what was the kind of work you started doing initially? I did a year as a, a local newspaper photographer where it was literally we do eight jobs a day. And it would be like they had us going every 30 minutes. So you're driving around 100 miles per hour from job to job, walk in the room, shoot the picture, next job. And it was like a fast learning curve. So you'd be like sports events, politicians, babies, check presentations. And then I landed a job working for a news agency where I was doing hard news. But I was yeah. also doing PR photography. I, I basically landed a gig shooting all the corporate portraiture for Microsoft. At, oh, like, okay. at like 21 years old and boss was that I worked for was making so much money from that that it was great for him but uh <laughs> so I, I did I did about six months with him and then I got the opportunity to work for a company in Los Angeles and just jumped at it before we jump into that the pace that's required to do like eight assignments in a day is intense. I used to have to do like maybe three, maybe four at the most. Couldn't imagine eight. What did that teach you? You gotta know how to drive a car and edit, <laughs> and edit at the same time whilst answering a phone. <laughs> I, oh I remember God. once they had me driving around. I was literally driving about over a hundred miles per hour, editing on a laptop with a cell phone to my ear, trying to get to the next job. And you try to explain to them stop scheduling so many uh, jobs close together mm -hmm. and they they didn't want to hear it there i remember the year 2000 they had this great idea of um doing the last year of a certain school grade because the logic behind it was you would go and photograph a group picture of 300 people and then every 30 minutes you'd do in a school picture where you were photographing 300 people and the logic behind it was all the grandparents would buy the buy the newspaper because they wanted a picture of the kid Mm -hmm. So in one day, you could photograph eight different schools. <sighs> so that was kind of, yeah, it, was a, it was a good learning curve. And it was just, I, you just shot everything and anything. I remember like my first ever job was, my audition was six pictures in one day. And luckily my dad was kind of like, all right, well, what's your next job? And he's like, it's a check presentation. So I said, okay, well, you need to make sure you do this, this and this. And then the next job, well, it's a big public event. Well, I'll make sure you do this, this, and this. So I could just call him on my mobile, and uh, I landed the job. I, I blagged it, which is basically we mean uh, you bullshit your way into a job. Mm -hmm, yeah. So my first, my first job was chief photographer. I walked in <laughs> as, as a chief photographer, <laughs> making out like, yeah, yeah, I've done this before. Yeah, no worries. And like you're in charge of hiring freelancers and taking care of the people, but you got the the art of the blag is that you have to be able to pull off the black otherwise you just crash and yeah. burn and you find someone you know they're on to the next one but uh, i've heard that story so many times can you do that of course i can yeah, and then you no figure problem. it out yeah no problem got it boss got it <laughs> so what was the work that you did in la so i moved over it was a celebrity news agency called splash news and i started working for them in 2000 and i 
always wanted to be in the States anyway. So it was kind of like, all right, I've got to do this to get to where I want to go. The way they explained it to me is like, look, the portraits, everything are very nice, but it's a $500 day rate. Or at the time, it was like 400 bucks. Whereas a paparazzi set of uh, Michael Jackson is $100,000. So which one's going to pay our bills? Instead, mm-hmm. we, you have to be able to do both, but we need you to learn this paparazzi work as well because that's what's going to pay our bills. So, you know, going from shooting corporate directors at Microsoft to having to follow Pierce Brosnan in a DB5 or whatever he was, you know, you're, you're, you're driving down the PCH, right? And there you are. He's in his Aston Martin, and I'm in my beat-up Mazda 6-2, whatever it was. <laughs> and you're like, shit, I'm chasing James Bond. This fucking kicks ass. <laughs> and so the cop pulls you over at a red light and says, uh, why are you in a hurry, Mr. Penman? So that was my entry. So that's, that's a completely different world, most of which people don't have any clue about. They see the photographs everywhere. Right. And there certainly is enough criticism about what it means, you know, people, you know, hold their noses when it comes to paparazzi, but it's, it's a part of our, our culture. Right. It's, it's been so for a very long time, but in terms of being able to be an effective celebrity photographer or paparazzo, well, what do you have to do? It's not just about being able to take a, a competent picture. There's so much hustle behind that. What were some of the things that you had to learn really quick in order to be effective in that way? Don't be seen. The industry changed a lot. Like, I guess when TMZ kind of came around, like this crash mm-hmm. bang wallop kind of in, in your face. When we were doing it, nobody even knew you were there. The other photographers I would work with would have a go at me if, if they thought you were even going to be seen. So everything was shot through tinted windows, you know, half a mile away mm-hmm. because everybody wanted candid pictures. And that's just the business it is. Uh, you know, my boss... He would always explain to me, he was like, you got to remember this is like America's biggest export to the world is celebrity and the movie industry. If people don't like it, stop watching TV, stop buying magazines, stop reading newspapers, and it will all go away very quickly. I always knew that, right, I don't want to be doing this, but I know that I have to do this in order to be able to stay in the country working. And I did it with them for about six months before I moved to New York. Uh, which was the end goal anyway, was to get to New York City. And, you know, it's not a business that you want to be in. The money is good. It was all expenses paid, beautiful hotels. A lot of the time, the celebrities were giving you the information. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's I didn't feel so bad. Once I kind of saw, you know, we used to get these tips and I'd be like, wow, these tips are so amazing. How do they possibly know this? And it would be the girlfriend of the celebrity that would be giving you the information. So once I kind of saw this, yeah. I kind of got I got over the whole, oh, my God, you know, how can you do this? You kind of see the inner workings of it. And after that, I was like, all right, the, every, everyone's in on this. Yeah, it's all part of the game. Yeah, it's part of the game. So how is it? How is the, the nature of the work different in L.A. as compared to New York? Back then, L.A. used to be totally low key. Like I said, nobody even knew you took a picture. The thing was, if they saw you taking a picture, then they control the situation and they give you pictures that they want to give you. Mm -hmm. It might not be the story that the magazine wants. In New York, it was a lot more, because the streets are a lot more close, confined, the photographers here would work a lot more like in in your face, which is not how I like to work. I don't want people to know that I've even taken a picture. 
so I would always do it from a bicycle. I had a 200 or 400 with a 1.4 converter on. And, you know, I'd be like one and a half blocks away from the celebrity. A lot of the time they knew who you were and they weren't so worried about you taking a picture. They just didn't want you drawing attention to them on the street because they're more worried about people on the street going up to them. And then they, right. then you have a security issue. So they'd be like, you can take my picture. I have no problem. But if you're going to do it, I don't want anyone to see you doing it. Because yeah, they could get swarmed at that point. I would see it all the time. You know, there would be these huge problems we would have. So we would all, like the camera would never come out of the bag unless you were going to take a picture. Yeah, it, it was a lot, of, a lot of problems. Yeah, I think the, the image that most people see most of the time is is the swarm of photographers around someone. Yeah. You know, either they're waiting for someone to walk out of a, a hotel front door or some or some store. How did you see that evolve and change to the point that it is sometimes like like that circus? But the, the the thing is those are the pictures that don't sell. They're not worth anything. Which was like if I would see a swarm of people, then I would just go away. I'd be like I don't need to be there because those guys are shooting for sixty cents. That's all you're going to get paid, if you're lucky. Mm -hmm. I never really totally understood that logic. Uh, most of my work, believe it or not, was working with celebrities. They would give you information. You know, I'm going to be kissing my boyfriend on this on my stairwell at this time in the morning, and it would be because they're trying to squash a rumor that someone's saying that they're linked to another guy, another celebrity. So a lot of my work was like that, and it was just nice and easy. I would show up at 9.30. You know, I would be more worried about other photographers seeing me. Mm -hmm. I'd, take, I'd take my picture and move on. That was one of the interesting things about in, in your book about it's not so much that you were worried about the celebrity seeing you as you were concerned about other photographers figuring out what you were doing or where you were going. Yeah. The celebrities knew who they know who m most of us are. Uh, they know who the troublemakers are. They know who the ones that are going to be respectful. And it was more a case of, is another photographer going to see me and screw it up? You know, a lot of the time they weren't necessarily in on the fact that you were actually working with the celebrity. Mm -hmm. So, we, you know, there would be occasions where I would get a text and it'd be like, you know, I'd have to turn to the celeb and say, don't come here. It's going to be a problem. And then we would switch the venue of where we were going to take the pictures because they want to control it as well. Yeah. And it was interesting that you would sometimes work in teams with, you know, two or as many as four photographers in terms of working out, ensuring that one, at least one of you got the shot and that you would split it, split, I guess, split it, split it up. Yeah. Is that something that happens a good amount of the time or was it something that you, it was something only more, a few people do? It was only a few people because you, you've kind of got to trust someone. And a lot of the time people would like to phone their friends like, I, I give you a favor, you owe me a favor. Mm. So you could only do it with certain people. But say you were doing a job on the Waldorf Astoria, you know, there's 10 different entrances that they can come in and out of. You know, you would put a person on each corner. And you're not looking for a celebrity to walk out of a door because they would never do that. You're waiting for them to get in a particular car. So you, you were more than likely looking at license plates mm -hmm. than anything else. And... To be honest, a lot of the work I would do was investigative work, not so much celebrity. So the celebrity was kind of like the thing that would pay the bills, but the, the nuts and bolts of it was investigative work. So 
you really didn't want people to see you. You know, um, the only job I ever turned down was they wanted me to go down to fly down to Nicaragua and photograph an ex IRA member. And I was like, well, if he's in Nicaragua, he's not ex IRA. And you definitely don't want to be seen photographing that guy. So a lot of my jobs, believe it or not, were like uh, pedophile priests. Or I used to do endless stories on pedophile priests for this one Irish newspaper. And I knew if they phoned me up, it was always going to be track down this pedophile priest and get a picture of him. So I never wanted them to see me. So it was, you know, it was interesting job let's put it that way and likely a bunch of different characters that you worked alongside with it seems like that's the kind of work that draws any assortment of different personalities characters yeah what were the kind of people that you discovered were gravitated to this work because it it requires a a particular mindset so you would have ex-military a lot of ex-military guys do this people that are attracted to the money you kind of see people coming and going all the time, to be honest. Like new kids will come in thinking that they're going to make $100,000 and then they realize kind of what's involved and get out. Mm-hmm. I would say, yeah, like the, the bulk of the guys I knew were military guys. We had one a one British colonel was doing it, some Marines. Um, yeah, an interesting, uh, an interesting assortment of people from all walks of life. And then you'd have a lot of photographers, news photographers who, you know, you had the, the guy that shot Paris Hilton in handcuffs was the same photographer that took the famous uh, shot in Vietnam of the naked girl running down the street. Oh, Nick Oot. Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's like, you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of very famous photographers were doing this as well. Like, But for myself, like I never put my name on a single picture in the 15 years that I was doing it. I never put my name on a picture. Why was that? If you're staying in a luxury hotel in Hawaii, the first thing the security team on that hotel are going to do is Google search every single guest staying. Oh, okay. And if you Google and all of a sudden Phil Penman and 100 paparazzi pictures come up, it's not going to look too good and you're going to get kicked out of the hotel within 10 minutes. <laughs> Smart move. Yeah, so I, I never put my name on anything. Well, you got around doing a lot of that work on a bicycle. Yeah. which having been in New York is not something for the uh, weak-willed to yeah. to do, much less um, chasing around celebrities. Uh, tell me about negotiating those, those notorious city streets on a bicycle in pursuit of a photograph. It, it used to be easier, believe it or not, before they started putting all the bike lanes in. Once the city bike came in and the bike lanes, it was like an excuse to double park. Oh, oh, wow, yeah. So, you know, before you could just flow through traffic and it was no big deal. The bike actually benefited you. Trying to do it in a car is an absolute nightmare because there's red lights everywhere. You run a red light, you're going to get a ticket, which is $270. So <laughs> right right there, your, your picture is null and void. A motorbike was the same issue. The bicycle, it was just hey, if you were fit and you could keep up, then you would get pictures. And also it would benefit you because a lot of the celebrities would kind of respect that you worked hard for your living and actually develop relationships with certain celebrities because of the bike. So it really it paid off for me and it kept me fit as well, you know, but it was, it was grueling. Yeah. You got a great story about pursuing Madonna and at some point her sort of acknowledging that you were putting extra effort as compared with other photographers and 
Well, I had I had certain celebrities called me Tour de France, which I always <laughs> thought was quite amusing. <laughs> and then Madonna, I was doing her for two weeks straight. She would, whenever she would come into the city, I would always just work on her because, you know, she's a total pro. And the way they would work it is like um, she'd have police sirens in her car. They run every single red light you could think of with their cars. And the, the people, the security team that she would use would be like terrorism task force unit guys and ex-detectives. Mm -hmm. So they could do whatever they wanted. So the bike was the only way you could keep up with her. Like if you're in a car, you were going to get pulled over by a cop. So it would always be that I was the last one standing. One day... I follow her to some film set after losing like 15 cars and all the bicycles and motorbikes. And she had about 20 security guys behind her. Nobody was doing anything. And she's posing up behind the film camera doing all these like great family portraits of her, the kids and Guy Ritchie. And I'm getting all this stuff just going, why are these guys not blocking me or trying to beat me up? You know? And the sound guy comes up to me at the end of it and he's like, you know, I don't know what you did to impress her, man, but she wasn't letting anybody touch you. And he's like, <laughs> I was like, what are you on about? It's like, well, I had a mic up the whole time because she's doing a, a behind the scenes thing, documentary. And she was like, that guy's been chasing me on a bicycle for two weeks. He can take whatever picture he wants. So That's it, awesome. it paid off, paid off. Thanks to the many of you who have committed to supporting the show financially. While other podcasts rely on advertising and sponsors, we rely on you to support the work we do here at TCF. We're approached occasionally about running ads on the show, but I prefer to say no. Though they could provide us a nice paycheck for a couple of months, I'd rather not have to spend time trying to convince someone that this show will provide them a good return on investment. I'd rather receive support from people who already understand what we do and just want to support us. If that's you, please become a Patreon supporter today. You can contribute $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. These modest amounts add up and provide us the means to keep the show growing and thriving. So if you enjoy the work we're doing, please come on as a Patreon supporter today. Thanks. Your book also consists of a lot of street photography, which is wonderful. We've got just some great street portraits and, and, and images of the city. And I, I, can't, I can't help but feel that you've been able to really experience the city largely as a result of being on that bike. Because it's very different from being in a car or even walking the streets. Tell me about how your perception of the city was shaped by the result of you just being on a bike all the time. I don't know what it is. You just like... One, you're out there for like 12 hours a day and you're just moving through everything. You're seeing everything. Whereas walking, you can only cover so much ground every day. Mm -hmm. And there's def I've definitely found there's things that you miss on a bike that I find walking. No, I don't ride around on a bike anymore. I walk around now. But I was able to see a lot more of the city than maybe most wouldn't and see a lot of strange shit as well. <laughs> you know? been there seen it and it's just a question of whether you want to photograph it or not people ask me how the hell did you see a guy walking a turkey you know or a, that is a, one of the oddest pictures i've ever seen made in new york and that and that's saying something 
Yeah, or like, a, you know, a spaceman walking straight through Soho. And it's just like, just riding by, spot it and throw the bike on the ground and quickly get the picture before it goes away, you know? So I've seen it. Yeah, every day you see something here. And this is one of the things that makes that city so unique is just how the oddest things just seem so normal. You know, you couldn't do that in Kansas City. <laughs> you know, I mean, if someone does do that in Kansas City, it's really the odd man out. But it seems like uh, you, your, your odds of being able to see something that you capture with a camera increase markedly just because it's New York City. Um, yeah. Uh, and you find yourself like now, like I don't know, yesterday, I'm walking by and there's police helicopters flying above. There's literally 50 policemen on the street. Everything's cautioned off. And I'm like, oh, what's going on? It says, oh, some guy's barricaded himself in uh, a building. And it's just like, all right, another day, carry on walking. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, been there, seen it, done it, move on. I really like your, your street portraits. Um, there's, a, there's a spread in there where you have four for men who are, have brooms and, a dust, and dustpans. And it was a really a wonderful set of imagery because you had very four really distinctive people who were doing the same kind of work, but you really got a sense of their personalities. And, and I felt that you really embodied a, a sense of dignity in each of the men, uh, even though they were doing something that a lot of people would continue, consider menial work. But I really love that each one was a unique person unto themselves in each of those photographs. And I love that you brought them together as, as a group. It's funny, I didn't even notice it, to be honest. Oh, really? Yeah. The uh, curator who did the book, you know, she pieced all together all these these groupings. And I, I was totally unaware that I had, you know, I, I knew that I'd photographed people with street sweepers, but I didn't know I had like four or five of them and that she was able to do a spread like this. And like, well, you know, my wife was like, well, yeah, that's because you used to do that. And I'd never thought about it. That was, you know, one of my past jobs was I used to be a street sweeper cleaning up after a market every Wednesday, you know, when I was growing up and picking up cigarette butts in the rain, stuff like that. And it was just, I don't know, I, every, every person that I try to photograph, I, I shoot in a certain way. And it's, you know, you shouldn't judge anyone for the work they do anyway. Yeah. So I, it's just, shoot, you know, they, some people will try to do silly expressions and I'm just like, no, I just, just stand there. You don't have to do anything. And just kind of let them do, you know, let them, let their character come out in the picture. Yeah, I think that's why I like so many of the portraits is because you see them as a person, not just as some element that you can make a photograph of, right? That you yeah, seem to, you recognize the humanity of everyone that's in your, in your photographs. And that really comes, comes across. I see other people who make street portraits and it seems like it's just, oh, there's a, someone who looks odd. Let me make a photograph of them. Right. And you, you get a sense. You can look at the Im image and still f and know the difference or feel the difference when you take a look at the pictures. Yeah, it's, you know, I try not to judge anyway. Anyway, you don't know what someone's background is. You know, when you look at someone, the other day, you know, what I've been working on a series doing like the homeless of New York City during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the other day I'm, there's a, there's a guy and I'm, I'm, photographing you know we're chatting and he's like oh that's a Leica right and he's like you know I used to run a um, family studio with my brother we used to shoot with Hasselblad's doing big family portraits 
And now he's um, going up to cars trying to get change to get a sandwich. Yeah. You know, another guy I was photographing the other day is like, you know, turned out he was like from where I came from in Dorset in England. And, you know, he used to be a classical pianist and teach kids. And now he's on the street. So whenever I photograph someone, it's like a lot of the time I'll get chatting with them before I even take a picture mm-hmm. just to kind of just get a sense of who they are. And yeah, you, you're not there to judge. You just, just to take a picture and let everyone else decide. Yeah, because I, I feel that engagement in a lot of your, a lot of your photographs. Uh, you don't do as much of the paparazzi work now. So what do you, how do you sort of uh, make a living now from your photography? Uh, commercial work, shooting features. So like uh, I do a lot of work with the New York Review of Books, um, portraiture. They are, you know, they have a nice. I have a nice gig with them because they get access to some incredible people. And it's like, you know, can you do a shoot with cartoonist Art Spiegelman or, you know, so I'll shoot portraiture work. uh, Like I said, commercial work. I teach for the Leica Academy, which is kind of fun. I I really enjoy teaching, to be honest. So we do workshops with the Leica Academy where, you know, you have 10 people, you take them around the city and kind of show them what you do. And I've enjoyed watching the progress and seeing how their careers have evolved as well. And that's, I find that very rewarding doing that kind of stuff. What led you to transition out of doing the uh, celebrity work? I couldn't take it. One, the money just plummeted. I never wanted to do it anyway. The, the only reason I did it was because of the money. You know, living in New York City is not cheap. It was kind of like, you know, I reached a point where it's just, I want, you know, you just, my wife's life was hell. Every day you would come home miserable, angry at the world because that picture that was $10,000 turned to a $2 picture because two other guys showed up. Mm. And you might have spent three days waiting for that picture, you know? So there was always something. There was always like a lot of pressure because there was so much money on the line. And I did, like I said, I did it for about 15 years. And I just started losing the, you know, the will to live with that stuff. The only way I saved myself was kind of having another camera in the bag where I could do my street photography. And it was kind of being funded by the paparazzi work, but it was also giving me the access to all these great street scenes that I wouldn't have been able to see without the paparazzi work. I ended up going cold turkey. Like I, um, I, quit, I quit photography completely, pretty much. Well, one of one of my jobs I used to do was a uh, lifestyle portraiture. So lifestyles of the rich and famous, you know, Donny Osmond in Las Las Vegas doing, you know, here's me in my house. (laughs) One of the best celebrities, by the way, any celebrity that carries your gear to the car and asks you, have you got enough water for the drive home? Cool guy. So like a lot of old uh, Nashville stars, Brenda Lee, Charlie Daniels, all these people I used to do all their these portrait gigs at the time the paparazzi work was killing me so i just I, you know I, I had a friend who was in the cycling industry and i was like have you got a job and he's like you you for real and i said like anything i'll take anything it's like well actually i need a sales guy for the northeast of america so i quit the paparazzi work and i started working as a lycra salesman like cycling gear yeah yeah for a company called costelli and i did that for three years but at the same time, I carried on doing the lifestyle portraiture work. I'd be like in Brenda Lee's house. Yeah. And I'm like, do you mind, do you mind if I use the restroom quickly? 
and I would go in the restroom and I would just start hammering out emails on my cell phone about cycling team requests. Come back out the toilet, start shooting Brenda Lee again, and then like finish the job, get back in the car, hammer out the responses. And I did that for like three years until- Ever the hustling. Yeah, just hustling. Yeah, I needed healthcare as well. So after that, I, I did about three years for them. But it's funny because all the contacts that I met during that job at Castelli, mm-hmm. I have since started working for a ton of those people in photography. Oh, okay. So it gave me access to people that I never would have been able to meet before. So things kind of happen for a reason. That's, that's great. And that portrait of Brenda Lee is wonderful with her husband. Uh, he's a, that was awesome. So... The story behind it, like, Brenda Lee is just cool. You know, if you, you talk about pros. She's a true pro. Mm-hmm. She's been doing it since she was, like, 13. I'm doing these portraits of her by her piano. And her husband, Ronnie, walks in the room, and he's wearing, like, a pair of dungarees. He's got no top under. You know, he's completely bare-chested. He's got a baseball cap on, back, on backwards. And he's like, I'm ready for my close-up. And I'm like, all right, come on. Get next to Brenda. We'll do a nice portrait of you in front of the piano and he's like what what and i was like yeah yeah no you know pose next to brenda and i said i i need you both to look completely miserable (laughs) because they started smiling because it was like you know he looks like this big clown and i've said no no you gotta look completely miserable so i take this picture and she comes up to me afterwards like good on you she he tried to call your bluff he was trying to call you out and you called him on it so about three months later, I'm in a shopping mall in New Jersey, and all of a sudden my cell phone rings. And I was like, hey, it's Brenda. I'm like, yeah, Brenda who? And she's like, yeah, Brenda from Nashville. My wife's with me. And she's like, you've got to be shitting me. Brenda Lee. <laughs> Brenda Lee is not calling you on your cell phone right now. I'm like, yeah, Brenda, what you have to, how can I help you? And she's like, you remember that picture you did of me and Ronnie on the, on the piano? I was like, I really want to use that as my Christmas card. Funny, like, I, I guess, like, a couple of months later, I'm doing a portrait shoot with a guy called Bobby Rydell down in Philadelphia. It's like a old 50 singer. And he's, we start talking about all these people we've met. And I said, Brenda Lee. And he said, oh, it's funny. I got a great Christmas card from her the other day. So that worked. That's, that's nice. That's a great end. Yeah. So it's funny. Like, uh, you know, I've, I've stayed in touch with a lot of these people, like Linda Dano who was like Sue Ellen Ewing mm-hmm. from Dallas. You know, I did a shoot with her, and then we stayed in touch after the fact. You know, I remember watching Dallas when I was a kid in England, and now all of a sudden I'm emailing back and forth with Sue Ellen Ewing. You know, so it's like... Very surreal. Yeah, surreal. So you, do you feel like you've really reclaimed your joy of photography now that you sort of took that step away and you're sort of reclaiming it in a way that you really take pleasure in? Yeah, definitely. I guess with the paparazzi world, it was like the money was so crazy and you got hooked on that. And it was like, well, you know, if I made, say I made $20,000 a month, right? Mm -hmm. Another photographer would show me his checks for 50,000 a month just to kind of rub it in. You know, some of these guys were making crazy money and it was like, you felt, you know, you look back at it and you're like, God, I was an arsehole. I was complaining of making $14,000 in a month. Like, what the heck's wrong with you? And then all of a sudden, it was like, you know, you're making all this money, but you hate it. 
So now it's like, I, I don't care if I, as long as I can pay my rent and I get to take the pictures that I want to take, I'm happy. I just pay my bills. I don't need to make $20,000 a month. I'm happy making my bills and my rent, but enjoying what I want to do because the worst thing can happen is you hit 50 and all you've done is spend your entire life chasing money, doing things that you don't want to do. And now that's it. You're over. And you're still cycling? Uh, last, no. The dog got me. Um, I, was a ra- <laughs> I was a racer and I broke first one was I broke my collarbone at 50, oh, miles, 50 miles per hour in a race going down. And then the second one was I broke my hip and it was just like the medical bills over here, man, are just too much. It was like $60,000 operation for the collarbone and the, the hip was uh, two years of recovery. So I was like, all right, that's enough. Oh, and my wife and my wife would divorce me anyway. So, <laughs> so what was the process of putting together the the book? Because you spent a, a long period of your career, and a lot of those images, like you said, when you were working, were work images. They're images you were producing in order to earn a living. What was it like to sort of revisit all those all those photographs and put them together in this way? It was probably about a year process with the book, putting it together. Uh, writing the stories, I kind of I, I I wanted like a something that I could go back to, twenty thirty years from now and look back at some of the, the funny stories that I had, and so those were kind of done. And then it was like working with the publisher where, you know, they've been in you know I, they've been in this business a lot longer. They know about publishing. I don't. So I was like, oh, we're going to break it down into these three categories. You know, it was probably I worked with a curator on it because it's it's I find it too hard to go through my own work, you know. So mm-hmm. that helped doing that, but it's it's not an easy process putting a book together, especially they needed three hundred images for it. There's a lot of pictures yeah. in this book, a lot of work. Like it's pretty packed, and I left out a lot of other stuff that you know, like my nine eleven work, obviously didn't fit into the book you don't want a big like negative downer in there mm-hmm. so you know that's like another book that i'm working on right now it's like the 9-11 stuff and revisiting it 20 years later but no i was very happy with how the book turned out and then obviously with the amazon and all the stuff that's gone on since has been that was kind of surprising to be honest didn't ex- i didn't expect that the book was going to do as well as it did what surprised you most when you had a, finally had a chance to take a look of the, you know, all the work in total? There's a lot of work. And I, I, I was thinking about it earlier, and it's like I've done a lot of different things, photography-wise. When I look, you know, I have like 600,000 images on my hard drive. And wow. I'm like, there's a, I've gotten to meet a lot of very cool people. I've gotten to see a lot of cool stuff over a pretty short period, like, I think 24 years I've been in the business and then maybe another five years prior to that shooting. So it's a lot of work. And it was like seeing it a book for me. It's just great to have something in print. Like I, you know, I prefer print over digital. It's just not the same. So having that book is nice and going to a printer and getting your work printed up is nice. You know, I like, yeah. Getting like, great. They did a wonderful job on it. Yeah. I, I was very happy with that. I've shot a lot of stuff since that I wish I'd gotten in the book, you know, but that's, that's the way it rolls. Yeah. Well, there's always the next book. Yeah. 
<laughs> just, just got to sell the car. That's all. <laughs> well, my last question, which I ask each guest, is I ask them to recommend another photographer, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that photographer be and why? The one that, the one that I gravitate to is dead, unfortunately. That's Arnold Newman. Oh, yeah. He's, he's uh, uh, someone that inspired me from college. And it's funny, actually, your last guest, Wayne Michaels, mm-hmm. he was another one that inspired me when I was young, when I was like in college. I used to try to reproduce kind of similar sequences that he used to do. Wow, like modern day photography? That's a tough one. Like, Those two are great. Living, living, living guy, living, my, my favorite is Salgado, hands down. Oh, yeah, Sebastian, yeah. Yeah. Sebastian Salgado, amazing. Yeah. No, I, his early work just is on to me is on a whole another playing field well Phil thank you so much man I really enjoyed the, the conversation and the book thank you so much I really appreciate you having me on thanks to Phil for joining us find out more about him and his work by visiting philpenman.com and if you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show write us a review on whatever service you listen to podcasts. Those reviews have allowed us to grow. Thanks for True Liberty for their five-star review. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and our mailing list. On the YouTube channel, I offer critiques on images submitted by TCF listeners like you, while the mailing list keeps you updated with all TCF events, including workshops and more. Sign up today. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or make a one-time or reoccurring donation via PayPal. Thanks to Lucas Rapp, Terry Verschel, Pedro Fernando, Susan Sanders, and Thomas Erickson for their recent contributions. We also provide a series of ebooks on photography available for purchase on our website. It's my way of sharing my experience and knowledge and another way for you to support the show. And if you can't find every episode of the show, download the Candid Frame app, which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.